You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one podcast on all things marketing, advertising, and communications. I'm your host, Ted Lau. And today, I'm very excited to introduce you guys to Sean Embry. Sean Embry has been creating innovative digital tools and interactive experiences for over 20 years. As a producer, he's been a key player in the creation of some of Canada's most acclaimed digital and cross-platform properties, including the NFB Interactive, CBC's Radio 3, and CBC Television's ZN Exposure. As creative director at leading U.S. and Canadian agencies, he's led digital initiatives and campaigns for over 100 high-profile clients, including Nike, United Airlines, and McDonald's. In 2010, he founded Denman, a studio committed to helping producers, publishers, broadcasters, and brands develop stories and experiences that engage audiences imaginatively across platforms. He's produced a deep portfolio of award-winning digital properties for Bell Media, the CBC, Discovery Channel, Post Media, APTN, and the Knowledge Network. His work has been recognized with multiple Webby Awards, Applied Arts, Communication Arts, Canada Online Publishing Awards, a Gemini, and a Canadian Screen Award. He's a frequent speaker, lecturer, avid tennis junkie, and plays in a band called The Padded Cell, which, if we have time, we'll get into. Anyway, welcome, Sean. Thank you, Ted. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Thanks for the nice intro. You're welcome. Well, thanks for your time. So we usually start asking all of our guests, you know, a little bit about who you are and maybe give us your origin story. I'm originally from the prairies, from Saskatchewan. And I grew up there. And after school, I did some traveling around. I was a ski bum for a couple of years and rode my bike around Europe and Came back to Canada, you know, did my degree in, in Saskatchewan and then ended up in Chicago for a long time. Chi-town. Chi-town, great town. Hyde Park. Good, good pizzas, hot dogs, right? That's what they're famous for. Oh, and baseball, the, the, Cubs, dogs. the Cubs. <laughs> Cubs. I was actually a South Sider, so it was all about the White Sox. All the White Sox, all right. I lived two doors down from Barack Obama in Hyde Park. Nice. Before he was, a, you know, when he was a community organizer. So you like and, jog uh, with him and stuff? Would you? you no, you no, 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 actually, I didn't have many interactions with him. Uh, my wife used to see him a lot at the grocery store when he was making his first run at Congress. And he always say, uh, you got to get your citizenship so you can vote. So. <laughs> and then about 20 years ago, I, I just got a fantastic opportunity to come back to Canada and to Vancouver to help be part of the start of CBC Radio 3. And uh, that's sort of what brought me back. And we came up here and we ended up in this crazy neighborhood called Deep Cove. My kids were sort of just at the right age. And yeah, life's been good since. That's awesome. And then you started Denman. Yeah. Well, you know, I had a really good run at the CBC. And, you know, I was in advertising and digital in Chicago. And after the CBC run i jumped back onto the ad side for a couple of years at cassette and it was actually i think it was around 2010 that they made a lot of changes to the ways that film and television were getting funded in canada 
And they said that you had to have like these rich and substantial digital components with your TV show or film in order to get these production funds. And I knew that a lot of producers, you know, didn't have any clue about that stuff, about making websites or apps or how to, you know, produce media uh, that they could leverage across different platforms. So, yeah, I set out on my own and started Denman. I have a partner as well. His name's Steve Mackey, who I worked with at both the CBC and with the NFB. It's awesome. I mean, when I was reading your profile, it was basically you did everything that I wanted to do when I was in university. I'm like, wow, CBC Radio 3, Zed. I remember watching Zed late at night, doing projects, maybe yeah, having a couple of, couple of beers. And it was really amazing. But it was unfortunate. It, was, it wasn't that long, right? Well, it was four seasons, five nights a week. It was not an easy show to produce. You know, <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. You know, this was before it was basically a lot of user generated content. Yeah. In the days before YouTube and things like that. That's true. I remember the execs were like, they were like, hmm, this is like free TV. And I remember it was like, no, 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 this is going to be more expensive TV because <laughs> we don't know what we're doing yet. And <laughs> pioneers. You know, yeah. It was, those were really, really, really fun days. And I was very lucky. We had some really great leadership there, you know, on the exec side that, you know, really kept us sort of protected from a lot of the rest of the corporation in some way, you know, that's, and really let us push a lot of boundaries and try a lot of things. But yeah, I always feel very fortunate to have had that experience when i was younger watching that it was kind of helped me aspire to where i am right i actually got into video production and watched a lot of this i didn't actually quite frankly know it was user generated content at the time i don't think that term was even a term yet and it was just so in my mind revolutionary it was great and i guess now that you say yeah five days a week you know, four years, that's a lot of content. I just remember thinking, oh man, it's over? Oh, the CBC always cancels good shows. I remember thinking that, right? Well, I remember when they did cancel it, we were such a close-knit team, both at C at Radio 3 and Zed. And uh, when, you know, they wound down those things, you know, part of it is that they were R&D wings as well, right? Like a lot of like, New Music Canada and the huge user gen database of music at Radio 3 became music.cbc.ca. Zed actually spun into another show I did called Exposure and things like that. So, But I remember when they canceled Zed and then YouTube suddenly became this huge thing. And then they were like, turn it back on. And we're like, it's too late. <laughs> like, we'd have to rebuild all the tech and stuff. And yeah, no, very good times, very good memories. The best part was I just got to meet like every great emerging artist in Canada. You know, whether you were like a filmmaker or a photographer or a musician, you know, I was kind of the one of the old guys at CBC Radio 3 and at Zed, but I had all these like hipster APs and stuff that would like just be, you know, out at shows every night, filling me in on what was super cool. Yeah, that was a really good thing to be part of. 
Well, now you're kind of a cross-platform guru. So, I mean, was the work at CBC Radio 3, NFB Interactive, all those things, is that kind of, was that an opportunity that fell in your lap? Were you looking, you know, as a career aspiration to get into that? How did that all fall into play? Well, part of the reason I ended up back in Saskatchewan for university was because they had a really good journalism school. And so I was studying like English and journalism in university. I thought I was going to be like a National Geographic reporter or something. This is before the internet, right? I thought I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. (laughs) I also worked all through university. I worked at a science center. I was kind of a science kid, but didn't want to study it in university. So I worked at the science center and they had like this really cool design department where they were making exhibits and they had a, a really good communications department and I got exposed to a lot of these things. I was kind of interested in the periphery. And and then they also had this really early internet connection there. Most of what was on the early internet was all science, right? Mm. And I was like, this would be a really good way to publish things and stuff. And so I learned like the really basic HTML and we made an exhibit that was kind of supposed to be like the internet in 10 years. and as soon as I did that, I made a website for the science center. And as soon as I did that, the phone started ringing. And one day these two guys called me up at the science center and said, do you guys, you know, need a website? We were just building it then. And my question was like, how do you guys know about websites? And they were really young. Like I was only 23 or 24 and they were like 16, but they'd figured out all this graphic stuff and, so we started a little company and did websites for Samuel Jackson and that supermodel Carol Alt and a lot of provincial government stuff. From Saskatchewan? How did you yeah. get Samuel L. Jackson as a client? There was nobody making web. There were less than 10,000 websites. Wow. We were young and stupid and this crazy lady stole our company away. What? She's now in jail. Oh, on other different charges years later. And that's when I went to Chicago. I had this big portfolio and got a job with like a killer agency and really loved Chicago. And while I was down there, I knew a guy from university named Rob McLaughlin. And he had done journalism and he was doing interesting web stuff with the Edmonton Journal and a little bit with CBC and I called him up a few times and I said, you should come down to Chicago and work here. There's Clinton's in office and there's tons of work. And, you know, he sort of put it off. And then right after 9-11 and when things were kind of melting down with the dot-com thing, he called me and he said, I'm going to Vancouver to start this Radio 3 thing and you should come. And my kids were just sort of at the age where they were wanting to ride their bike over to a friend's house. And we love Chicago, but, it, you know, they weren't going to be doing that. And my wife was really chomping at the bit to get back to work. So we came up to Vancouver and took one look at it and said, yeah, this is where we go. So that's, re- that's really how it happened. It was like, a, you know, like everything, it's like a connection, right? Rob ended up, you know, is, he's still like an executive producer at, at NFB as well. So when 
you know, after exposure, I went back, I went to work for cassette for a couple of years. And when I was starting my business, you know, he asked Steve and I, if we could help him, we'd done an NFB project together when there was, there was a CBC lockout, I think in 2006 or something. And it was funny when we were at Zed and at, at Radio 3, we were always trying to like license stuff from the NFB to show on these platforms. And it was early days still then. And they were like, mm, but the film's going to be in a festival and 400 people are going to see it. And we're like, <laughs> but then they really, you know, just after we did this one project for them during that lockout, they really got the digital thing and the power and the potential of the storytelling. And so Rob actually went over there and with this guy, Locke Dow, who we worked with and started the NFB Digital Studios. And he knew we were starting our company and he invited us. He, he needed uh, some help just, you know, creating the initial platform and slate of interactive documentary that they were doing. So it was a good start to the company. And we still do a lot of work with the NFB in fact, right now we're we're actually re-engineering some of the more groundbreaking work that we did around 2010 in Flash. In so Flash, H, well, oh, HTML5 has finally caught up. You Blast know, you do, from the past. You Flash. can do so much great stuff in Flash, right? Some of the experiences that we developed that were really multimedia-driven. You know, it's HTML5 is kind of finally caught up to the point where we can recreate something. So we just recently relaunched Welcome to Pine Point, mm -hmm. which is this amazing interactive documentary about this small town that doesn't exist anymore. What's it called again? Welcome, Welcome to... to Pine Point. And what is Pine Point? Where is Pine, Pine Point? Pine Point is nowhere. It does not exist anymore. It was a mining town created in the 70s by Kaminko and an old friend of ours, Mike Simons, who's part of the Goggles, had lived up in the north and gone to a hockey tournament there and looked it up one night on the internet. And when the mine closed, they literally moved everybody out and raised the town. Wow. But what was interesting is that the people who lived there for that generation, you know, really have such deep feelings for it and such strong memories. And the story really starts with the question, like, what if your hometown never existed? Would it be better? You know, you hear people talk about Vancouver. Oh, I remember the old days when it was this, and now there's an Arby's there. And, <laughs> you know, and so it's just this sort of perfect place in their memory. And it's a really beautiful story. And there's this they found a treasure trove of archival photography. Wow. It all gets built into the story. It's really nice. You should think about getting it rebuilt and recolored with AI. There was a, a YouTube video that was circulating about Vancouver from 19, like early 1900s. And it was just, just a camera going down, I think, the main strip. I don't even know what that street was. I think it was Main Street. And there's horses and like carriages and all that kind of stuff. It was so, it was so weird, but it was great to see it, get a glimpse of the past. So that's really interesting. I, I love the archival stuff. Actually, I have a, like a personal project going that I got to get back to. I started it about five years ago and 
I found a laser disc. <laughs> okay, and explain to the younger audience members on this podcast what a laser disc is. It's like a giant CD or DVD, like the size of a record LP, essentially. It was one of the first optical storage devices. They can't hold that much, like relative to the kind of storage <laughs> no, that we have today. But they were sort of like, even before beta and VHS, they were sort of this high-end alternative to it. And they were interactive, meaning you could like skip ahead to different chapters in a video. There was a little menu and stuff. And anyway, I, I found this laser disc at the library called The Vancouver Story. Mm -hmm. I tracked down the creator of it, this guy named Patrick Burns. He's, he's an old timer who will talk your ear off. <laughs> smoke cigarettes and talk your ear off this guy but anyway i worked with him and i licensed the content it was created a few years before expo in 1983 or 84 in 1986 is expo yeah expo yeah but this was created just a few in uh, with the museum of science and technology or something it's now science world and there's all these archives and they like Sometimes it might just be like a thousand postcards from some collection, like archival collection. And it shows as like a really fast film, but on the laser disc, you could flick through them sort of like you would on a website or something. But one of the most interesting things on this laser disc were these stop motion films, like um, time lapse films of Vancouver. And he said that they set up a Bolex camera in the car and they drove all over Vancouver and filmed all the streets and they made it time-lapse so that it could fit onto the disc. And it was supposed to be like a time capsule, right? This disc, the irony being that nobody could use the time capsule like five years later, it would have been just better to throw all the photos and everything in a tin box and bury it in the ground, right? Because no, no one, I was going to ask you, you got the Laserdisc, but do you have a Laserdisc player? Because the last time I saw a Laserdisc player was, and I'm Asian, and so we have a lot of relatives, a lot of uncles that had karaoke machines on Laserdisc. So that's what we know our Laserdisc to be. Do you have a Laserdisc machine? It was not easy to track one down and get all the footage transferred off of it and everything. And I'm kind of fascinated with technological obsolescence because, you know, so much of my work, it vanishes into the ether. Like even oh, yeah. the Radio 3 magazine, which was, you know, they taught it at Columbia. It won every award sort of you know, in the world and was, is, you know, we, we tried to keep it alive, but technology just moves so fast that it's fleeting. But anyway, so that, that's what the story was going to be about. And so me and my son, we've got a GoPro camera and we slowed down and we traced all the routes around Vancouver and we refilmed it all. So it's all all reshot. There's a few shots we haven't done yet. Like there used to be a bridge that ran over False Creek, like a train bridge. You know the Arbutus rail line where where the bike yeah, trail yeah. is. Of course, that yeah, used yeah. to be a rail line, and one of the shots is on that train going down those tracks. So, oh, wow. I got to get a drone and film over the water, and then a dirt bike and go down that <laughs> rail line or something. 
but most of it's shot. But I want to create like an interactive installation showing Vancouver then and now. Oh wow! Sort of I can't side wait. by side. That'd be yeah. beautiful. That'd you be might have to wait. Like I said, <laughs> it's one of those projects that's been on the shelf for a couple of years. Well, then you're gonna have to refilm it again after, right? And do the whole exactly. thing another route. <laughs> exactly. You can just wait and do Google Earth, you know? You could just do the Google Street View and just mimic that. I think that, well, we I guess you can't do the drone thing, but. We used a lot of that to just trace the routes again and stuff. But. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, so you've kind of been there, done that. You know, you've done the worked for corporate, government, you big agency, and then you started out on your own just over a decade ago. And I think a lot of marketers on our show would be interested in understanding what that leap is like, that leap to strike out on your own and, you know, take on the world, right? Like, what, what's that like? And, and how did you do it? Because that safety of that paycheck, you know, you work for a big agency, CBC, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what was that like? What advice would you give? Mm, well, it was definitely a little scary, right? Because, you know, especially when I was at Cassette, you know, I was a creative director there. I made really good money, but there was also a lot of, it was pretty high pressure and there was a lot of stress and a lot of give and take. And, you know, for me, I knew there was an opportunity there. That was the main thing. I knew these filmmakers and television producers needed help and that I could help them. So that was the first thing. And you know, since then, we've diversified a lot. Like we make websites for all kinds of associations and businesses now and everything. But they come to us for the same kind of storytelling that we do for the filmmakers and television producers. And I remember that actually the biggest decision was I'd started this. I had a few clients lined up. And a lot of the first year was taken up with helping the NFB set up their digital studios and interactive platform. And they actually offered me a job at one point. And it was sort of then that I had to decide, okay, am I really going to do this? Or am I going to, you know, 
take this job that seems to make perfect sense for me. It was a logical next step. There was going to be a lot of success at NFB Interactive. And I was working with people I really liked and stuff. And I remember I was wrestling with it. And, um, you know, I talked to my dad and talked to my wife and, you know, and all these pros and con lists and stuff. And it was actually my neighbor is a yoga instructor. And, you know, she's pretty out there and, you know, stuff. And she just said, Sean, use your live-o-meter. Your and what? Like, live-o-meter? What's a live-o-meter? A that's what I said. I was like, what the fuck's an live-o-meter? <laughs> she goes, just go home and close your eyes and think about the one opportunity and think about the other opportunity and it'll be there for you. And I did it. And uh, it was actually clear as day that I had to keep going with this business. Yeah, I always thank her for that. You know, initially I started, I was very fortunate because I had this huge network of artists and technology people that I'd worked with over the years. And I was getting the kind of projects that you know, even talent that I couldn't have hired in-house at Cassette, you know, they want, they're really great independent developers and artists and things like this. And they would take my projects, even though I was small, because they were kind of interesting. And so really for years, I worked from home. A lot of my clients were in Vancouver and my kids were sort of in high school then. and. It was nice for me just to even be around, and it was a bit of a lifestyle choice, and I was still working with really interesting people. And, you know, really, it was just like three or four years ago that we realized, oh, we've got this great portfolio, and all the business systems are in place, you know, like all the accounting software and all all that kind of stuff, and that you know, my kids were kind of grown up and gone off to university and I felt like I had a little bit more energy for mentoring and, you know, to commit to people. You know, before I used to just like, I would hire the most senior, best. I tried to build the business on quality. And so, you know, I just find the best developer, the best designer who would work with me. And, and then just a few years ago, we decided And we still do that, but a few years ago, we decided we were going to start to build out an an actual in-house team and, you know, get the office. And it's been sitting empty, by the way, down in Gastown for the last uh, year and a half or whatever, but that's fine. So we've, it was lucky we were very, it was very easy for us to go back, you know, to working virtually during the pandemic, but we're really excited to get back too, just because we're on this sort of new path with. We've made some great hires. It's really fun, actually, to have some younger people around. You know, that don't know who, anything about laser discs. Yes, but they know all these other things that I don't know anything <laughs> about. <laughs> yeah, TikTok that's and stuff. That's what's really cool. So yeah, we're excited about that. That's amazing. So it sounds like you had opportunities lined up, but really it was the alivo meter that got you on that path, and then it sounded like you were working with a lot of freelance contractors, getting your systems in place, growing organically, working with interesting people. And then now you've brought the folks in-house and 
are looking to flourish after the pandemic? Yeah, you know, really, we've been lucky through the whole thing because, you know, the work has kept coming. And we were very fortunate from the very beginning that, you know, just through word of mouth and we didn't have to do a lot of sales. And like I said, I wanted to build the business on quality. And I think that went a long way. It wasn't always about making the most money, like pay the guy you're bringing in, pay him well, you know, for his talents and make something great too, right? Life's a lot more fun when you're like the clients happy and, you know, you get to make something cool that you think's worthwhile. You know, what one thing we're trying to do more these days is be more intentional about the kind of work that we bring in. But at the same time, I love it when somebody calls me up and says, I've got this business or I've got this film project I'm doing. And, you know, we're generally interested in people and what they're doing. You know, sometimes we think, oh, like, are we really going to take on this little job or are we really going to work for this weird manufacturing company? (laughs) But then, you know, that's what keeps life interesting. And sometimes the, you know, the ethereal arty documentary is really cool but then other times you just want to like help somebody sell more widgets and that feels really good too right that's part of the marketing but yeah so you know i also own an agency it's a digital marketing firm and i think it's a very good one i've checked you guys out oh thank you oh you're making me blush a little and what i've really enjoyed is like you said having the ability to meet all sorts of interesting people. And what I was really excited about for our conversation today was really about storytelling. And that's really the crux in my mind or the seed of your brilliance is that you're a storyteller. And I think, you know, everyone's worried that the robots are going to take over and, you know, destroy our jobs and take our souls. But at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to take away stories. I don't think anyway, maybe they, they'll create Alexa or something to tell stories, but at least right now, right, for the next foreseeable future, storytelling is is what makes us human. And it's been you tribal know, for so many years. And I want to understand how you do it. You know, Stephen King's a robot, right? <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> it's a really tough question. Like, how do I tell stories? But um you know what is is a lot of people don't apply like even the basic principles of storytelling to websites. So often, like the user experience demands like getting to information quickly, right? And that makes sense. You know, if you're looking for a new pair of shoes or you want to find out the latest political update or something, you want to be able to quickly get. And there's so much information that you know you want to get to what you want to get. And sometimes, you know, I'd work with really good designers and they would, they'd struggle with what we were doing because we're like, we're going to just like, in a, when you go to the movies, you sit down and the picture comes up and there's a guy running through the woods. It's at night and he's sprinting through it. You don't know who he is. You don't know where he is. You don't know why he's running, but that's like the beginning of the drama. And the story doesn't always unfold in like this neat chronological or you're not presented with answers and easy lead-ins to everything. 
And so a lot of it's just applying some of that, like these basic storytelling things to web experiences. One thing we do in, in that it's, it's not really creating the story. We work with a lot of storytellers and they bring their story to us. And a lot of times, you know, they sort of discount their story for the web. They're like, well, maybe we'll show some behind the scenes outtakes and we'll have like a community blog. And, and I'm like, you know what, you have this like amazing story. You just spent like three or four years tracking down and crafting, right? Why don't we just find a new way to tell this story online, you know, in a different way for a new audience, right? Do you have an example of like a story where you had a client or somebody come to you with some story that they were like, meh, not really sure. And you're like, well, let's turn this into some digital yeah, experience. I've got a lot. And a lot of times, like I said, we do a lot of cross-platform. So it is a film. It is a TV show. It's an app. It's a website. It's all these things. And when we do this work for businesses, it's in some ways easier and in some ways harder because it's easier in the fact that they have teams that maintain websites and story. Filmmakers, a lot of times, they make a film and then they want to make the next film. And they forget all about the last film. And so when they say, oh, I want to have a community. And I'm like, you don't want to have a community. You want to make this film and you want to go make your next film. And you're going to forget all about this community. So let's focus on your story. And sometimes it's just telling one little piece of their story well online. It gets them interested in like another aspect of the film. So here's an example. We recently worked on a show called Nations at War. It's uh, an APTN show. And basically it's about the conflicts that shaped the North American continent, like the Seven Years' War and the Riel Rebellion and like a lot of in indigenous and the English and the French and the Mex and the Spanish and fighting. And it's, it's a really cool show. They use tons of CGI and, you know, we get so used to this sort of European battlefield, you know, each episode of the show takes on one of these conflicts essentially. And it, it might be a full scale international war. It might be a small insurgency. It might be a rebellion. It might be like an armed conflict, you know, so essentially what we what we did there was just, you know, so much these days too with production and fragmented audiences, you have to leverage your content, right, across platform. You know, everybody knows it today, but 10 years ago, not many people were thinking that way. But having done that work at the CBC, I remember when we started Radio 3, and I'm being tangential now, but... You know, a lot of the radio people were nervous. They're like, I make radio. And I'm like, you're still going to make radio. You're still going to have your microphone and you're going to go talk to people and you're going to interview the cool band and you're going to come back and you're going to cut up and make a radio edit. But then we're going to send a photographer along with you and he's going to take some pictures and maybe some video. And when you come back, 
we're going to transcribe your interview and we're going to turn that into a written kind of magazine article with images and we're going to hear little snippets from your interview and some of the music. It was basically like a magazine with a built-in radio, right? And you see that, you know, through all of CBC's work now, like if they do a story for the national, it ends up on cbc.ca and in a podcast. And a lot of filmmakers and television producers weren't used to the idea of they're really good at planning production because it's so expensive, like down to the nickel and dime and where the gapper is going to be and the lunch lady and the all how that many, kind of stuff. How many sandbags you need, all that kind exactly. of stuff. Exactly. They're really good at it. But you see this in advertising too. Digital was sometimes an afterthought. You'd shoot this, you know, million dollar advertisement with, uh, you know, Brad Pitt or something. And then it's like, what are we going to do on the internet now? And it's like, well, you know, can you stop for a second and, you know, kept Brad Pitt in the chair for 10 more minutes, you know, and shot a few more things with him, then you could have taken your 30 second spot and turned it into like a 12 minute online Mm. extension. Right. And so part of the work that we do is really helping those producers think about planning production around assets that can be used in the show on the website on the app and so really planning around that and so for nations at war again we didn't reinvent the wheel we told the same story as you see in a televised episode but in canada you know it might be that you know only a hundred thousand people see that episode right but online, you can go to the same episode, and now it's a much more it's a more readerly experience. We take a lot of the writing that's done for the narrator of the show and turn that in. And then when there's an interview, we'll cut to the video, and you see infographics, you see imagery, and it's a more rich sort of multimedia experience. But again, we're not reinventing the story. And then how do you do it? On, it does. I think it's great. I mean, we always talk about repurposing content. I think for, you know, my business, a lot of our clients are like, ah, I don't want to spend all this time, you know, writing blogs and whatnot. And I'm like, look, we do one blog. We can turn that into a video, into a social post, into ads, into all sorts of different things. And I think that's kind of the approach that you're doing. I'm interested to seeing, you know, how you take that approach when it comes to social, when, you know, things, especially on, you know, Insta, Snap, TikTok, depends on the platform that that your users are going to be on. How do you preserve some of that story when it's so short? And how do you plan for that? You know, to be honest with you, we don't do any social media management for our clients. And we periodically will help them with a campaign. Like we've made a few Facebook buys and things like that, but we tend to be, you know, create a bit more kind of like destination or the content that gets marketed. One difference between our producer clients who have the story and have a lot of assets that we, or that we help plan, we help them to create a plan to create assets that can be used in all these technology that we build with more corporate clients or nonprofit clients 
we do all that, but then we produce a lot of the content for them as well. Because we have those capabilities, video production and things like that. But a lot of them have, you know, they have their either their in-house marketing or they work with an agency like yours, right? To do all the SEO and the social marketing and stuff. And like I said, we've we do a few campaigns. We certainly, you know, will pipe in on what we think is good. And, you know, social campaigns were just coming in when I was a creative director at, at Cassette. So I got to do a little bit there. But for the most part, you know, it's a whole other expertise. And, you know, I'm a Facebook power user on my own personal, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's not our bread and butter, that's for sure. I got that. Okay. Where do you think cross-media production and digital storytelling is going to go where is it going in the next let's say five to eight years i think it's going to get easier for people to do maybe on the technology side storytelling is again it's one of these things that's so fundamental that it's in some ways i think it's not really touched by that is, it, it is. It's, uh, and I've made a living. Like, I had no idea when I was in university doing an English degree in journalism that this is how I would be telling stories. But at the same time, it's fundamentally not different from what I thought I was going to be doing. You know, the a good story is is a good story, and that's the hard part, right? You know, we can talk about virtual reality or AR or all these kinds of things. But I'm always a little, I don't know why I'm always a little bit skeptical. I just want to make sure that people can have like a, for me, it's just about, I don't want to do a story in VR and AR just because it's the thing right now. I want to tell it in on a platform that where the most people can see and experience it. And I want to tell it in a way that it's most impactful and cool and you know what i really like those you know those guys who made welcome to pine point the goggles mike simons and paul schubert they're local here in vancouver they're these wonderful storytellers and they did a project this last year with this instagram guy scorpion dagger Okay. He makes these weird animations like they're really weird animations on and he puts them on instagram and they worked with him to tell this story about this kind of teenage Jesus and his friend, Daryl. This, this I want to meet Daryl. Yeah. The book of Daryl. Yeah, exactly. And so they, they did all these Instagram animations. Right. And it's sort of those missing years in Jesus's life, you know, where Jesus they, teenage, yeah, when he went to the desert and disappeared exactly, to find himself or whatever, that's when yeah. he met Daryl. Yeah, and they plan a band, and they're kind of losers, and <laughs> um, they live in, you know, it's like dusty old Nazareth, and they want to get to the big city and stuff. It's all the same sort of hopes and dreams <laughs> all teenagers have, right? Yeah. And then this last year, they wrote and published the actual book of Daryl. You know, it's sort of biblical looking with like the, you know, the gold leaf and the leather bound. 
Is it a comic no, book? No, it's a full fiction With, like, like verses or something? Or, like, does it have actual no, verses? No, it's, okay, it's, no. no, no it, there is a, <laughs> a little bit of that in there. But then on each page, what they did was they have the illustration from the Instagram. And, you know, it's got the augmented reality thing. If you put your phone over there, you see the animation. Oh, it wow. reads just fine without the technology. But it's a really fun little project. And I love seeing people who, you know, like that sort of grew organically out of something, right? They had these great animations and there was a sort of a loose story and then they decide to make the book. And yeah, I love seeing people get creative with it. And I love seeing when it works. That's amazing. So as far as making predictions where where it's going to go, I have no idea. It may be that the next great digital story is actually a throwback to something like sometimes going back to like the past is where people draw their inspiration or who knows what kind of tech is going to get invented in the next couple of years. Right. You know, the VR stuff is cool. Um, a lot of the augmented reality stuff is cool, but I still think that the web rules. Yeah, and I think your throwback is really interesting because there are kids in Asia that are hitting the cassette tape, right? Listening to music on cassette. So, I mean, I still got my... Actually, I don't have any cassettes anymore. I threw those out when we moved. I was going to say I still have my cassettes, but they're all gone. I kept one. I think I have my Pearl Jam one still kicking around somewhere. I kept one cassette and it's not even... I don't know why it's dear to me, but the Bare Naked Ladies... You know, I'm not like everybody likes the bare naked ladies and I'm not like a super fan or anything. But when I was in university, they used to tour around a lot and they sold. I like it more. It's a symbol of their story. You know, you can have a band and you're 20 years old and you get signed to a record label and the record label gets everything because you haven't done anything yet. Right. The bare naked ladies toured around. And they sold a million cassette tapes. Wow. That's a lot back then. For four or five bucks a piece. Wow. And once they had done that, they actually went and got a record deal. But you can negotiate a much better deal when you say, I've already sold a million cassettes out of the back of the van. (laughs) There's a story. There's a story, right? Yeah, no, and so, you know, that's kind of why I appreciate that cassette tape. It reminds me, like, do the legwork, you know, do the bootstrapping, you know, make something on your own before you go and ask for all the money and all the backing and stuff, right? Amen. You know, one guy I used to, I really love that we ran into when I was at Radio 3 was he used to make music on a, um, like, 8-bit, the first generation of Game Boy had like an 8-bit processor in it. Tetris. I remember Tetris. Yeah, exactly. And he just reprogrammed it to like make all this like amazing music, right? It's like the Laserdisc thing. Laserdisc. Okay. So before I forget, where do I get Book of Daryl? Because I think I need to go buy this thing. I think you could Google Book of Daryl. I'm going to go Google it. By the goggles. It's a really cool book. Yeah, you guys should all go get it. All right. Okay. So we're going to do our rapid fire round now. Are you ready? Rapid fire. Do I duck and cover It's just here a bunch or, uh... of questions to kind of get get to know Sean, you know, Sean the man. 
It's just a bunch of, you know, it's safe. It's all good. It's safe for work kind of questions. Okay. So I'm going to start easy. Favorite tennis player? Mm. Mm. Oh, I love a couple of these Canadian guys, Felix Ojeda-Sim and Denis Shapovalov right now. Nice. But I also, lo- I really like Kane Shikori from Japan. Wow. He's getting wow. a little older now, but he's kind of my style of tennis. Favorite word in another language? Favorite word in another language? Oive. Oive? What's that mean? <laughs> it's Jewish. It's like, ah, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. probably not my favorite word in another <laughs> language. I just, I'm just blanking. I like cerveza. Cerveza is, is a good one. What are you streaming right now on Netflix or Amazon or whatever? You know, I'm terrible because I don't watch like a lot of drama or comedy. You know, every once in a while I get sucked into one. I'm like a total news junkie and tennis. News and tennis. All right. Okay. You know, but uh, what have I watched lately? I watched a little bit of the Ozarks. Yeah, that's good find that pretty compelling and uh i like a good comedy when i can track one down uh lemme lemme he's this, this weird uh, youtube guy okay me and my wife are watching superstore on netflix right now favorite junk food favorite junk food's gotta be um oh hamburgers if you didn't live in Bank- junk food? i don't know if it counts as junk food i think i think it would Today. I'm addicted to hamburgers. Are you really? Yeah. Okay, yeah, favorite dude. burger joint. They're your favorite delicious. burger joint. Where's your favorite burger joint? My house. Oh wow! All right. My barbecue. I'm waiting for that invite. Yeah, let's do it. It's coming soon. If you didn't live in Vancouver, you would live in Laguna Beach, California. I just love SoCal. So my folks great. lived in Los Angeles for many years, and my sister lives there, and uh, I've got some cousins in La- that Laguna area, and it's crazy, and it's messed up and everything, but I can't get enough of it. Awesome. Are you a champagne guy or a beer guy? Champagne cocktail. I'm not much of a boozer at all. When I go to a restaurant, you know, they always bring, like, the girl drink and, like, the scotch. And, like, they always go to give me the scotch. I'm like, that's for my wife. I'm like, I'll <laughs> take the fruity cocktail. Thank you. With the umbrella. Thank you very much. Exactly. <laughs> One thing that you would give as advice to young storytellers coming up? Read a lot of stories. Consume a lot of stories. Think about your audience. Think about how you want to tell it. Start there. Do you have a favorite story growing up or now? Do I have a favorite story? It's kind of one of those things. It's like, what's your favorite record? It's like, how do you answer that? How do you answer that? I got hundreds and, um, you know, like I'm actually a huge, that's actually what I mainly watch on TV are old movies. Okay. What's your favorite old movie? Again, like, like uh, which so one? Many, I'll give you Casablanca. Why not? Casablanca. Wow, that's perfect. That's super classic. You might as well just say Citizen Kane at that point. How about Casablanca and Fast Times at Ridgemont High? There you go. There you go. All right. So, uh, Sean, want to thank you for your time today. It was a blast, and hearing from you and how you basically birthed 
inspiration for me to get into this field because of you know your work at Zed and Radio 3 is amazing. So thank you very much. How can people get a hold of you? They can write to hello at denmandigital.com. They can call me. My phone number is all over the place. I don't hide it. I'm not on Twitter much. You know, I retweet some Denman stuff kind of thing. Uh, I've got a pretty closed little life on Facebook. Who knows for how long or whatever. But I'm easy to find. You can Google me. Track me down on LinkedIn for sure. I'm always quick to respond. So I'm thank you so much, Ted. I really appreciate the time speaking with you and your interest in Denman Digital and and what I've done. So thank you again. You're welcome, Sean, and great to meet you. Thank you, everybody, for another Marketing News Canada episode. Stay tuned for the next one. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.